Okay, so I want to take a look at verse 26 and, and 27 tonight. We've, we've, we've already actually covered most of this already. Um, and last week we looked at this idea of, actually I'll go back to 25. Um, I do not want you to be wise in your own estimation. I'm reading from the New American Standard 2020, but I'll probably switch to New King James that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And so all Israel will be saved, and just as is written. And I'll, I'm not, I'll stop there just for now. Um, this idea of the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, which is an interesting term. We, we talked about it some last, last week. And, and uh, this word fullness in the Greek is the Greek word pleru, P-L-E-R-O-O. And... It, it literally means this, this idea of completion, or it, it's even used to, as I mentioned last week, when a sail in a sailboat is raised, the wind comes along and it completely fills the sail with air, so that sail is completely full, completely stretched out. Um, that's, that's kind of the concept behind this particular word. And, and then it says... The fullness of the Gentiles have come in. Uh, come in, uh, it might better be translated enter in. That's, that's really the concept of the Greek word here, where it is translated come in. And um, it's this idea of the Gentiles entering into something. And so with the way this is worded, the question then becomes is what is this talking about? And Often it's, it's interpreted, and probably rightly so, um, to have an end-time application. And there is a, another phrase in the book of Luke chapter 21 that uh, is similar. It's not complete word for word, it, it, but the concept seems to be the same. And, of course, Luke 21 is uh, Jesus teaching in Luke 21, tw- uh, 24. I'll read it to you and then give you a little bit of a background information. Um, Jesus is at, well, I'll start with a little bit of that. Uh, Jesus has asked the question in Luke 21, um, when will the temple be re- destroyed? Because they were pointing out to him, as he's walking along, they were pointing out to him the grandeur of the temple and how beautiful it was. And he tells them that I tell you that will come a day that not one stone will be left upon another. That's, this is a really important concept, particularly when I start talking about parallel passages. Now, if there was ever a time that if I lose you, you need to stop me and ask and backtrack this, this is because this is important stuff. So uh, this would be a time. Um, but in Luke 21, 24. Well, I'll back up to verse 20. It says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. 
for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem, this is the key verse here, the, the key sentence, Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Same um, Greek word uh, that we have for filled in Romans 11, the Greek word pleru. So you have this concept of the time of the Gentiles, and I think it makes, I think it makes sense that, that Paul in Romans 11 and Jesus in Luke 21 are talking about the same thing. Now, I've just opened up a can of worms and, and, um, because what we read in Luke 21 is considered to be a parallel passage to Matthew, excuse me, Mark 13 and Matthew 24, otherwise known as the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew and in Mark, there is not one question asked, when will the destruction of the temple be? And I'm paraphrasing, of course, but there are three questions that are asked. What is the sign of the end? What is the sign of your coming? And what is the sign or when can we expect the temple to be destroyed? Remember, it's all prompted by those who are walking with Jesus next to the temple and they are admiring the temple and he makes the prophecy that there will come a time that with the temple not one stone will be left upon another. And so, obviously, they ask more questions. In Matthew 13, sorry, in Mark 13, and in Matthew 24, you do not have this description of when you see the armies, or Jerusalem surrounded by the army, know that the desolation is near. You do not have that in Mark or Matthew. Um, and I don't have a good answer for why. And, and every, every answer that I've read and researched is, is based on someone's theology. Um, but we do have variations, as you know, in the three Gospels. John kind of does his own thing. That's why I've kind of left him out on this. But the three Gospels are also known as the synoptic Gospels, Okay. And then John is really kind of on a different, in a different place. So, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and even Luke 21. If you read them, it's pretty clear that they are prophesying, that, it, that is Jesus is prophesying, but he's also answering the question, Particularly, the twofold question is what is the signs of the time of the end of the age? And what is the sign of your coming? It's not asked in Luke, but if you, and I don't, I'm not going to take the time to, to, to read this because I was only going to spend about 10 minutes on this, but I think it's probably worth spending a little more. If you read the earlier part of Luke chapter 21 from uh, verse 8 to. Um, verse 19, 
you will have this interlayering. Remember what I told you that the Messianic Jews taught me that in prophecies, often there are layers. They are given in layers with near and far fulfillments within the same paragraph, and we're not always able to, to always accurately discern which is a near fulfillment, which is a far fulfillment. Remember, I've talked about this. Okay, everybody with me so far? Okay, just so Mark and Matthew, but particularly Matthew, in the first part of this sermon, known as the Olivet Discourse, verses really 3 through 14, they are descriptions of at the end times. And if you read that portion of Matthew 24, and you read uh, Revelation 5 and 6, with the opening of the seals, they, they fit pretty close together. Now, a lot of people interpret what Jesus is saying in Matthew as these things that are leading up to the end prior to the time that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24, 15, when you see the abomination which causes desolation, uh, know that the end is near. And then he tells us in what's recorded in Matthew and in Mark, that's the time to flee if you're in Jerusalem. Okay, he talks about the abomination which causes desolation. That is where the temple is um, uh, desecrated. And without taking, well, I, gosh, I could spend probably 10 minutes just on that topic. But, um, well, here I go. He's talking about the temple being desecrated, which place about 150 years prior to the time that Jesus was speaking, when Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Greek, um, and he took over Jerusalem, and he was trying to Hellenize or turn the Jews into Greeks. Remember, that this is how the Greek language became the universal language, if you will, of that part of the known world. And he went into the temple, and he desecrated it. A um, couple of things he did, and it's, it's written in Josephus and, and other early historians where he, he sacrificed a pig on the altar. I don't know how God didn't strike him dead here. Uh, essentially, one of the things I read, too, was he set up a statue of Zeus in, in the Holy of Holies. And um, what it did was it made the Jews so mad that they formed a revolt. They reformed what's called the Maccabean Revolt, which you can read about in the book First and Second Maccabees, which is not Scripture, although there are some groups who believe it's Scripture. I don't believe it's Scripture, but I think it's good reading, and it gives good hist- history of what took place during that period. All right? Jesus is saying what you saw 150 years ago is going to happen again. That's what he's saying in Matthew 24. That's what he's saying in Mark 13. Luke doesn't record that. He ties it into when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem. Um, know that the desolation is near and you've got to get out of the city. Did that happen? 
Yes. The Romans did it in 70 A.D. The Romans did it in 70 A.D. where they went in and they, they did a different form of desecration, but they desecrated the temple. But then what happened was there was a fire that happened uh, that was caught in the temple, and this huge fire uh, basically melted all the gold. The gold, being liquid, ran into the cracks of the, of the stones in the temple. So what did Titus, the Roman general, have them, them do? He had them dismantle the, the temple stone by stone to get to the gold. And that's why the temple was completely dismantled. Um, that's why one stone would not be upon another. In reading these prophecies and the answering of these questions, what is the sign of your coming? What is the sign of the end of the age? And what is the sign of the destruction of the temple? It, to me, looks pretty clear, especially as you read Matthew 24 and into Matthew 25. It's pretty clear that there, is a, there was the near fulfillment in A.D. 70, and you will see history repeat itself again at some time in the future because um, I believe Jesus is using this abomination which causes desolation, which is a reference to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel speaks about this. Daniel 11 speaks about this. Daniel 12 speaks about this. And particularly in the context of those three passages, we have not seen anything in history that would indicate that those three passages in Daniel have been fulfilled. And because Jesus references Daniel, that tells me that he very well may be talking about an event that was going to take place short term and then it will be repeated in the end of the age, of the end of history, prior to his return. Okay? So far, so good? Oh, that was a boatload. Um, uh, excuse me. That's your, no, <laughs> anyway. Um, Okay. For whatever reason, Luke does not record that. But he does talk about the Romans laying siege upon Jerusalem and the Christians who were there during that time understood what was going on and they recognized that this was a warning. And so they got out of town. Asubius, who was a 4th century Christian historian, records it. I'll read part of what he wrote. He says, The people of the church in Jerusalem were commanded by an oracle given by revelation before the war to those in the city to depart and dwell in one of the cities of Pyrea, which is east of the Jordan, by the way, which is called Pella. And to those who believed on Christ migrated from Jerusalem uh, that when holy men had altogether deserted the royal capital of the Jews and the whole land of Judea, the judgment of God might at last overtake them for all their crimes against Christ and his apostles 
and all that generation of the wicked be utterly blotted out from among men. So you can you can you can read in that this is fourth century. You can read in that probably a little bit of anti-Semitic expression from Eusebius, um, but again, he was a product of his time. So when you see the army surrounding Jerusalem, you are to flee. And then there's this 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 expression that the Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, which is, I said everything, what I've just said, just to get right back to that, okay? I need a uh, uh, Coke, please. Oops, that's right. Any questions so far? That was a rabbit trail, but I felt like it was a necessary one. Um, any answers? I think so. Uh, th- that's what I'm going to talk about now. But yeah, I think because th- there's there's differing views. So um, this word times. Remember back in 18 where we did the end time studies. You guys, okay. And you, you, you probably, I don't know if you remember this or not. If you don't, my feelings aren't hurt. Okay. Remember Acts chapter 1, verse 7. It is not for you to know the times or, and seasons, which Paul repeats that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's actually taken from the book of Daniel chapter 7, I believe. Um, and... Um, it's considered a technical term that refers to the end times, the time of the end, the end of the age. So it's kind of what you were asking, referring, you know, uh, Larry. Uh, you don't have the phrase in Luke, times and seasons. You have the word times, till the times of the Gentile are fulfilled. Now that word times is the same word that is translated seasons in Acts chapter 1-7. It is not for you to know the times and seasons. Two, two distinct but similar Greek words. Times is the word. Okay, so taken from Acts chapter 1 verse 7. So we'll set Luke 21 to the side, the times of the Gentiles, just for a moment. We'll say the seasons of the Gentiles. Does that help? Okay. So you have this concept of time. The Greek word is chronos, which obviously we get our, our word chronographer from. And it refers to this idea of tracking of time. Um, believe it or not, I am watching the clock, and I've got 32 minutes to be able to cram the rest of this in. Uh, that is an example of chronos, right? The, the idea of, of, of our concept, our understanding, and our tracking of time. But... Um, if I were to say, well, we're, we're just going to come down to the church tonight and we're just going to hang out and we're going we're gonna to talk about this stuff and, and I'm not even going to worry about if we even go home, right? We're just going to be here for the whole night. That would be more in the concept of a season. That is a, a, a um, um, I'll look at my notes finally. Okay, uh, a point or a period of time, but it usually implies... Uh, 
um, this idea of something coming. In other words, for instance, maybe a decent example. When you buy a house, okay, you write an offer or your realtor writes an offer. They accept the offer, and then what happens? What happens? Exactly. So you have entered the season of escrow. And as any good realtor will tell you, anything can happen in escrow, right? Ever been kicked out of escrow? Yeah, we have, because somebody outbid us. Um, That was a long time ago. Um, And then eventually what happens is to end that season, you go down. There's an office right here. Well, yeah, just right over to the next street. And you sign the final paperwork, and you do what? Close escrow. So the whole idea of entering escrow, what's what's your goal? To close, to be finished with that period of time to let everybody do what they need to do so that you get what? The keys. Or if you're a seller, that you hand the keys over, one of the two, right? So that's the concept of this idea, this word that is translated seasons in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, but it is translated times or the times or seasons of the Gentile. What does the ESV say on that? Or the, uh, You have the ESV, you have the NIV. What does the ESV say on that? Uh, 21, or do you, are, you, are you there? Luke 21, uh, 24. You got times in the King James? Yeah. Oh, you have the ESV in front of you. You got them all. Yeah, I've got an ESV in the... Nope, it's right here. Okay, <laughs> haven't gotten there yet. Okay, so um, it, it really does... And I think either, either word works for, for, for an equivalent. But I think it's important to understand that there is this, this concept of a time of the Gentiles. Now, what's funny about it is the big question is what is, you know, you ask, when, well, when, when is this going to be completed, right? That was essentially what you were asking, Larry. Okay. It's a marking point of when God takes over. In other words, the completion of the season. But what's the purpose? See, that's, that, this is where different commentators and scholars are going to differ. What's the purpose of the times of the Gentiles? I mean, we did read of God's plan in, in, in the book of Ro- Romans chapter 11 where the Jews or Israel because of what? Israel because of their unbelief have been temporarily set aside so that the the gospel would come to the Gentiles, the Gentiles would get saved, and then what would happen? What was Paul talking about? The Jews then would see the Gentiles accepting their Messiah, and they would be what? Provoked to jealousy. And Paul's like, I want to get as many Gentiles in the kingdom as possible because I want to get as many Jews jealous as I possibly can that they will have a change of heart and they will repent and receive the Messiah. That was his, his, his whole, and he's seeing this as, the, as God's incredible plan. Remember we even talked about the, the whole idea of the, of the younger brother and the older brother in the, in the uh, story of the uh, 
prodigal son and, and, and how that is given to us with Cain and Abel and Jacob and Esau and, and um, Joseph and his brothers and even Ishmael and Isaac. Um, and so um, this period of the Gentiles is it's either considered a time of Gentile mission in other words, that time, and I think Romans bears this out. It's a time where, where God is reaching out to the Gentiles. Now, there are some, and, and usually they're pretty, they're pretty stiff and pretty strong dispensationalists, but there are some who, who refer to the times of the Gentiles as this Gentile authority over Jerusalem, a, pl- a time of Gentile authority over Jerusalem. And, and so that brings up all kinds of questions to me. Are the Gentiles trotting the city of Jerusalem today? Depends on who you ask and depends on what you point to. What's on the Temple Mount right now? The Dome of the Rock. And, and that's even debatable. Okay, that's that because there there's some who says, well, there's this other little place that's just off to the side. Then that might be the real location of the temple, and where the dome of the rock is, that might be the court of the Gentiles. And the Book of Revelation says you don't measure the court of uh, the outer courts because it's been given to the Gentiles. When Israel took over, Jeru- uh, uh, the, the state of Israel came into being in, in 1948. Did they control the city of Jerusalem? No, it wasn't until the Six-Day War that they took the city. And then it was a divided city until later on, and they finally t- took the whole city. Um, and so I don't really think this idea of the time of the Gentiles, even though it's equated with their trampling, it, which really, I looked it up, the word, it, it just means to walk over. It really doesn't have a whole lot to do with this idea of control, governmental control. Um, and so those who interpret it that way, it could be a stretch. Because I've even listened to guys, I've even insinuated in teaching this before, that because Jerusalem is in Jewish control now, it could be that we're in an overtime period, which uh, I'm... I, I really liked that idea years ago, but I've studied more, and I think I, I think that's kind of lacking, to be honest with you. I think that's a little bit lacking. I think I think if anything else, in 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 the Olivet discourse, God says that except for the elect state, that these days would be what, or if it, because of the elect sake, these days would be what shortened. Talking about. A time of because in, in Matthew chapter twenty four verse fifteen and sixteen, Jesus goes on to talk about a time of tribulation that will be greater than has ever been nor shall ever be. So, um, I, I think this really I think what Luke Jesus is talking about in Luke, what Paul is talking about uh, in Romans is essentially the same thing as that this it's a mission to the Gentiles. And, and uh, this, this calling of the Gentiles um, into the gospel. And with that, I need to change pages. Um, I actually had two outlines tonight. 
um, but I want to jump into the second one and actually get back into Romans. We'll make it work. I hope. I've got a little bit of backtracking in one of my other outlines, so I can kind of pick up on that a little bit. Okay, so this idea of all Israel being saved. The time of the Gentiles has, has come into, they have entered in. Again, I don't know what that means. Often that is translated completed. The Greek word pleru, fulfilled, in, implies completed. The, the Greek word that's translated come in does not really talk about completion. It talks about entering in, which means what? Starting point. So I think we have to be careful when we want to attach a chronos, chronology to some of this stuff, because it's, it's, it's not maybe as definitively stated as we want it to be. All right. So back to Romans 11. Partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. Notice the partial hardening. Some of them will receive the Lord. Some of them will become saved. Um, and so then it, it gives us uh, the quote from the book of Isaiah. And it says, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Okay, so the first question I think is important to ask when it says all Israel, what is it talking about? Is it talking about all as in each and every single one. You said no. You've already, you're already taken the test, haven't you? No. Um, you know, there are people who believe that all means all. And they believe that every single one will be saved. Now, this phrase, all Israel, is used a few times in the Old Testament and it is a reference to basically, how do I describe this? Uh, it's a general description of the nation in its fullness, but not including every single, each individual. Right? Like when they said that the whole United States went to war, right? World War II, for example. Did each and every person in the United States go to war? No, they didn't. They didn't. Some of them did. But the entire nation was involved in this effort. Um, and, and so uh, I believe that that is what it's talking about. <coughs> um, <coughs> How is that going to take place? Larry, you asked about that earlier. And you seem to mention that you think that it was an end-time um, fulfillment. At least that's kind of the impression I got, or maybe that's just what I heard, because that's what I believe. Yeah, because I, I, this, this, you have a deliverer will come from Zion. Okay, what is Zion? Well, I have some nice notes about what Zion is, too. Hopefully I can remember them. What is Zion? Zion is another name for the city of Jerusalem. It can refer to 
the eastern ridge that sits adjacent to the Kidron Valley, which was where the, uh, uh, the original city once was. Uh, that's because remember before the before the city of Jerusalem was in Israel's control, who lived there? The Jebusites, and they named it Zion, and they were some of the people that God said, "Kick them out, eliminate them, and take the land." Well, for some reason, it wasn't until the time of David that they actually took the city of Jerusalem, which was actually pretty small. But it was up on a ridge. It was up on a, you know, a ridge of a mountain. And so it was a very uh, defensible spot. And so David took the city. Actually, Joab, if you remember the story, he shimmied up this, uh, this shaft and opened the gates. And they came in and they took the city. But it was then known as the city of David. It was also known as the city of the great king. And, um, and so... There's different views of what Zion this is talking about. You got that look on your face. Good. Hopefully I can clear it up. Is it talking about physical Zion here on earth? Or is it talking about spiritual Zion? And there are different Bible teachers will teach it different ways. I'm just bringing this to your attention because I think it's talking about physical Zion, physical Jerusalem. Zion and Jerusalem in the Old Testament are used interchangeably. So when you see the, the name Zion, it, you know it's really talking about Jerusalem. Zion was where the city of Jerusalem had um, its origins under Israeli control or Israel's control. Okay, so that's why it's also given the name Zion. Um, Those who trust in the Lord uh, shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever, the psalmist says. And so I think this is talking about when Jesus returns and when he comes, he will rule and reign on uh, Mount Zion. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, it talks about him stepping down on the Mount of Olives. Now, to me, that's a very hard uh, passage to, um, there, we'll do this one. Okay. Um, that's a, to me, that's a, a very hard passage to really comprehend, and I, I have to read it if I'm going to say something like that. Um, I think it's Zechariah 12. Yeah, this applies. This applies to what we're looking at. Let's look at this. I'm going to read it to you. Um, Verse 12, I'm going to begin in verse, I'm sorry, chapter 12, I'm going to begin in verse 1 of the book of Zechariah, New King James. Um, It says, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Notice who it's against. It's against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. 
when they lay siege. Um, Zechariah is after the time of the exile. And Zechariah, um, so was before the, the time where the Greeks came and took over Jerusalem. They really didn't lay much of a siege. The Romans did. Um, but it says Jerusalem uh, is a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day. Now, whenever you read, particularly in the Old Testament prophets, the term in that day, Pay attention because often it is a marker for an end time prophecy. And it's 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 given some I I didn't go back and look at my notes and um, but it's given so many times in the Old Testament. But in that day now, that's not always the case, but often it is. So it's kind of an antenna uh, to come up uh, to raise in, in your thinking. It says. Happen in that day, I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples, and all who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it. Has there ever been a time in recorded history uh, that all of the nations of the earth have gathered against Jerusalem, or particularly in a military siege? No. So I, that's part of why I believe this is a future prophecy. Um, and, okay, and uh, in that day, says the Lord, he says it again. I will strike every horse with confusion and rider with madness, and I will open my eyes on the house of Judah, and I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness, and the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength. Uh, let me back up again. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts. Another name for the Messiah. The Lord of hosts, their God. And in that day, there's the third time, I will make the governors of Jerusalem like a fire pan in the wood pile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. And they shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited against, again in her own place, Jerusalem. And it goes on to say, verse 10, and I will pour on the house of David. Who's a part of the house of David? Who's a part of the house of David? The Messiah is a part of the house of David. And often, particularly in latter prophets, because has David, has David come and gone by the time Zechariah is prophesying here? Yes, he has, Okay. So I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, that's the fifth time, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of, of Haddon Rimmon. In the plain of Megiddo, which is another name for Armageddon, by the way. Uh, or the plain of Megiddo is the place where it's believed Armageddon will be fought. Um, and and, uh, and so in that day, verse 1 of chapter 13, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
for sin and for uncleanness. Why a fountain? Because it's symbolic. This is the symbolism here. The the fountain will be open to clean them of their sin and their uncleanness. And so it's talking about this restoration that will happen in Jerusalem when the Lord returns. Um, Chapter 14, verse 3. This refers to what you mentioned, Larry. Uh, The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. Okay, because we're still in the same context here. As he fights in the day of battle, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move to the north, half of it toward the south. And it says, then you will flee through my mountain valley for the mountain valley that reaches Azel. And yes, you will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Um, Interesting. So you have this description of him coming back. And boy, the more I look at some of, particularly these Old Testament passages about when Jesus returns, the more I don't think any of us can have it right, to be honest with you. Uh, because, because if he's touching down on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives splits in two, if he's come back, why are they fleeing? So obviously, this idea of him coming back in Revelation and striking his enemies with the sword of his mouth, although it's true, although it's descriptive, and it, I think it's, it's more of a picture description than possibly complete literalness or complete liter, uh, literal. Uh, it seems like the, Jesus returns, hits the Mount of Olives, the mountain split. They return, and then he comes to war. And he starts taking names and kicking, you know what, all right? So, um, but t- to me, I've, I've asked people about this, and no one seems to be able to explain it. But it it's part of... His process, however short, however long, and the chronos, we're not told. But this ushers in the end of the time of the Gentiles, I believe, because it tells us they will look upon him whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. We just read that in Zechariah 12. And so the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. I'm going to catch up here. Uh, and get over here I'm in Romans. I was somewhere else. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. We see the picture of that in Zechariah where you have this, um, where you have, uh, this fountain that is described in verse uh, 1 of chapter 13 of Zechariah. And this fountain for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So he, and it's a reference to the covenant. What covenant? Or I could say more accurately, what covenants? First covenant God made that was an unconditional forever covenant because he made one before that actually with Noah right 
and then he made one with Abraham. Genesis 12, 15, 17. I think it's repeated in 19 and 20-something because um, it's with Abraham, then with Isaac, and then with Jacob. But it's the covenant that in you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. And it, it, it goes so far as to Paul saying in the book of Galatians that the scripture foreseeing that the Gentiles would be saved by faith preaches the gospel in the covenant that God made with Abraham. So in Jewish thinking, when you make a covenant that is an everlasting forever covenant, if a second or third covenant is then made, it does not annul the first covenant. It is an addendum to the first covenant. Does that make sense? You're adding two. You're not taking away. What's the second forever covenant that God makes? He makes it with David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And that he will have a descendant sit upon his throne. And you have, it's a fascinating prophecy that Nathan gives to David because you have this interlayering of near and far fulfillment. Sometimes in that oracle or that pronouncement of the covenant, God is speaking about Solomon. Sometimes it's very clear that he's not speaking about Solomon, that he's speaking about the Messiah. And then you have a third covenant that God made that's unconditional, that's found in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Ezekiel, I think it's 43, but don't quote me even though I'm being recorded. Anyway, but it's the new covenant. The new covenant that he makes with the house of Jacob and the house of Israel. House of Judah, excuse me, and the house of Israel. It is what Jesus institutes at the Last Supper when he says, he takes the cup and says, this is the blood, this is the cup of the new covenant that, I, that, uh, that I'm making in shedding my blood. It is what we commemorate, it is what we celebrate when we take communion, which we're going to do it on, on Sunday, right, Harv? We're good to go? Okay. Um, so the deliverer is coming out of Zion, I think it's talking about physical Zion. I think it, there is room for spiritual Zion. It could be both. I'm trying to think of the Psalms, and like I said, I'm sorry, it's, it's in the other notes. Um, but the Psalm that says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of God, our God and the beauty of holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the side of the north the city of the great king. Somebody ought to look it up for me. Uh, it's almost a word-for-word word quote. Um, beautiful uh, for situation, the joy of the, of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the side of the north, the city of the great king. Who is the great king? The Messiah. What is this Mount Zion on the side of the north? There's, yeah, there we go. There is a view that the Mount Zion on the side of the north is not a reference to physical Jerusalem. 
but it's a reference to the North Star, which represents the spiritual Jerusalem. Hebrews talks about not the North Star, but he talks about a spiritual heavenly Jerusalem, right? Because the North Star is called the North Star, why? Because it's in the north and it doesn't move. So it's, it's that center point. It's that centerpiece, if you will. You look up at the North Star and it's a reminder of our heavenly home. So, but I still lean probably more toward this idea of this being uh, an earthly Zion. Okay. Um, so I think we're out of time. I got two minutes. Okay. Any questions so far? Any answers? Are you with me? Am I with you? Okay. Yeah, but we want to try to keep it to an hour. Here, my dispensational guy who gives me an extra five minutes. Um, and I appreciate it. What? All right, if Harvey says two and a half, we got to go two. All right? Um, and no more. In relation to the gospel, they are enemies on your account, but in relation to God's choice, they are beloved on account of the fathers. Why? Why is Israel then, Israel today, beloved on account of the fathers? He just said it in verse um, um, 27. I just talked about it. Because of the covenant God made with Abraham, because of the covenant God made with Isaac, because of the covenant that God made with Jacob, who became Israel. Uh, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I've had that. I think there's a a number of ways to interpret that particular uh, verse. I've had it interpreted in way. Well, I'm not going to go there. I'm almost out of time. But I think it's here. It's definitely in reference to God's calling on Israel. And it's definitely in reference to God saying that there will be a time that a deliverer will come out of Zion and then the natural branches. I'm just taking this from the tree that we looked at. The natural branches that were broken off will be grafted back in. And, and then 